tonight. Um, and as it's been said, we are finishing off our Ephesians series. So we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, uh, from verse 10 all the way down to the end of 24. Um, it'll be on the screen next to me, or you can bring it up in whatever Bible or technology device you use to read. Um, yeah, Jesus, will you inspire your word in our hearts as we listen um, to what has been written in the past and bring it into our present and take it with us into the future. In Jesus' name, amen. The armour of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And I'm just going to pray for Jeff before he speaks to us tonight. Um, Lord, we do pray, as Paul asked, um, that when Jeff speaks, words may be given to him and that he may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which he is an ambassador, though hopefully not in chains anytime soon, Lord. Um, we just pray for the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to flow through him with the pre um, preparations that he has done in advance. Um, I just pray that... Um, yeah, he will encourage us as the Church of Key Baptist and that we may learn more about you and grow in love and faithfulness and stability in our own relationship with you uh, as Jeff inspires us through some of his walk with you, Lord, in his life. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. And over to you, Jeff. Thanks a lot, Beth, and thank you for your uh, wishes and prayers. Uh, this passage tonight is uh, absolutely crucial and we know it because it's the final passage in this wonderful book that we've been looking at, uh, where Paul, in prison, has had time to think and place our lives as church on the broadest canvas of the cosmos and cosmic history, not just human history, but the history of all creation and the Lord above it all. So when that apostle, having 
limited parchment has left space for these last couple of paragraphs. And when he says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in verse 10, and in his mighty power, I think we better sit up and listen. This is very important. This is the theme that he's been meaning to get to. When my wife leaves me with instructions and her way out the door, it behoves me to remember the last thing she said. (laughs) But moreover, this is not about remember to put the washing on type advice. This is about leaving an impression which is going to be indelibly written upon the minds and the hearts of this particular group of people. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and he's going to expand that in this little passage. This is the theme of the Christian life, that our strength is not in ourselves. When we're saved, we're not made into gurus or elites or super Christians. We are made dependent. And the success of the successful Christian is the success of the strength of God within the successful Christian. And there's another reason why we need to be strong in the Lord rather than ourselves or our identities or our our achievements. He says in verse 11 and 12, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Hold on a minute. That's fine print. It's nice of him to drop that on us right at the end. He then says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, verses 11 and 12. That's the neighbourhood in which we live. And for many Christians, I find that they accept Jesus on the basis of like a cost-benefit analysis and they sign up for this thing called Christianity and the love of Christ But for some reason only known to those who care for them, not a lot of people tell them about the neighbourhood in which they're going to have to live. That neighbourhood is an evil neighbourhood. It is a malicious neighbourhood. It is a warfare neighbourhood where civil war and other sorts of war are raging. Now, this is not just because Paul has had a bad day and we have a jaded Paul who's you know, been roughed up in prison and he's a little bit uh, weary of all that. This is the message that comes through Scripture. It's there from the beginning until the end. For instance, in Genesis chapter 3, just as the first family of God has left the garden, we read after the, the servant has done his worst, The Lord says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Offspring is a bit of a pun there. It means the human race on the one hand, but it means the single offspring, our Lord Jesus, who will hit this this serpent with a mortal wound, though he will wounded himself and that same theme runs through scripture and we pick it up again at the last book of the bible in revelation 12 where we read about the last battle and we read again that this serpent is now a dragon and we read that this dragon was enraged with the woman same woman as genesis 1 
chapter 3, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. You see his point, that even though Jesus has come, there is still a warfare. In fact, if you have become Christ's, you are more a target of this warfare. The reason being that the opponent to Christ, the opponent to the reign of God, detests everything about God. He is diametrically opposed to all the goodness of God. That's what he is. He is evil personified. And so if he cannot strike at God, and even if he is defeated, then this same being will strike out at that which is the apple of God's eye, you and I. The most precious things to God become the most detested things to his opponent. We have got to understand this. I'm astonished how many Christians, I don't know what world they're living in, but how many theologically educated Christians think that this idea is somehow primitive. It's woven through every thread of the scriptures. We have this whole idea that scripture happens in a three-wave movement from the battle to the coming of the victor and the defeat of his enemy. But that enemy is not destroyed. We now live in the period of the spoils of victory that we read about in Chapter 4, and the destruction of the enemy awaits at the end of history. That's where we live. We live in a two-story and a three-phase history. There's an upper story, a lower story. There's a spiritual realm in this realm. And somehow, in a way which we will never conceive of until we get to glory, those realms intersect. We need to accept that as part and parcel of a Christian perspective. Paul says we will live amongst also some pretty rough neighbours. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world. He's mentioned those in chapter 3, verse 10. But through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. It seems like these rulers are um, uh, spiritual beings. And there is a debate theologically as to whether we should take this seriously as personification of evil, that these are beings, or whether they're political and structural aspects. And I think if we read the scriptures, we'll see that it's not either or, it's both and that these beings are active within the structures. For instance, in the midpoint of history, we read this incredible story about the Magi coming to see the baby Jesus, the the one that they know is the Lord, and they they deviate via Herod's palace, Herod, the the arch-narcissist, the the half-breed king of Israel, And that guy cannot stomach the idea he's going to have to share a stage with another king. And so he puts out a a, a decree that we read about in Matthew 2 that when Herod realised he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And what inspired that fury? And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. The last thing that Satan wants is for a saviour to come and die at a cross. He wants to snuff out God's plan. Not only that, in the middle of this story, we read that remarkable 
passage in Matthew 16 where, where Jesus at Caesarea Philippi steps into Gentile territory and he asks the boys, who do they say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you're the son of the living God. Jesus gives him a little rap on the head and says, well done, Peter. Holy Spirit revealed that to you. And then Jesus starts to fill in the fine print about his mission. And he says, you know what's going to happen down the track? I'm going to be delivered over to the best theologians and the priests and the religious people, and I'm going to be persecuted and killed and on the third day rise again. Did you get that? And Peter, the events manager for Jesus, thinks that that's not the sort of message that fills churches. They need something positive. And he takes Jesus aside and decides to, re to rebuke Jesus. What's got into you? Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me. You're getting in the way of my mission. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You think you're going to bring in the kingdom of heaven. You think by your own, own clevers you're going to defeat Satan. You've got another thing coming. He sees that Peter is being used instrumentally by Satan, and he calls it. You can't read any part of the scripture and not see that history is warfare, that the meaning of human history is not some collision, some dialectic between philosophies. It's not about classes in conflict. It's not about races or it's not about some genocide that occurred in the past which spurs people to be, be as evil as they are. That just doesn't get to the core. The core is that we are part of a warfare where humanity is instrumental in that warfare. And not only humanity, but those who are closest to Jesus can be instruments in that warfare. If Peter can, if the buddy of Christ can, then you and I can. And we need to take that very seriously. We're, this Christian walk, this Q Baptist thing, it's not just a walk in a park, it's a walk in a lion park. And if we think that we can be safe just by being cutesy, we are going to be a casualty of that. Let's have a look at what he says then. In verse 13, because of the neighbourhood we live in and because of the neighbours we live amongst, he says, therefore, it's a reasonable thing to expect that you'll put on the full armour of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you notice when the day of evil comes, not if the day of evil comes, it's bound to come. It's inevitable for each of us. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. And then another command, verse 14, stand firm then. Did you see that? Three times at the climax of this letter, he commands us that our fundamental business in this world is simply to hold our ground. We are not called to become holy ghostbusters, to go out and make a caliphate for Jesus. We're not called to fight the fight. The victory has already been fought. Our job is to appropriate that victory and to stay where we are and to clothe ourselves 
as he goes on to say in God's armory. Stand firm then. Put on the full armor of God. We cannot specialize. We cannot say, you know, I'll just look after my intellect or I'll just look after my passions. We need to look after the whole person here. We need to pay attention to all those things. So then Paul, he tends to wax lyrical in the next passage as he, he itemises this, this uh, armoury that we're to put on. He says, stand firm then when the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. That's the armory that he has given it. It sounds very flowing. But we've got to realise, first of all, that if Paul expects that warfare is inevitable, to the same extent he believes that we've been placed in an impregnable fortress of God's care by salvation. Now, that's how we need to understand spiritual warfare. There are these two truths, the inevitability of the warfare and the sufficiency of God's provision for his children in that warfare. At the same time, that means, and here's the crux of the rest of the passage, that means that the evil one has only got one shot left in his armoury. There's only one thing he can do, and that's to get us to concede. He can't get into the fortress. The demonic cannot penetrate the Holy Spirit. But he can get into the fortress through the heads of Christians, through how we think. And we've seen that. What his ambition, what his fundamental strategy is for the rest of time is to get you to see for concede. Concession is the game plan. That's all he has. And we shouldn't be aware of that. We've just seen in the last month the, the news that all of us are aware of about the fall of Afghanistan. We've seen the Taliban come into that country, despised as they are, and take on an armory that is the most sophisticated science, military science has produced. The Taliban were outnumbered by the government forces five to one. So how did they take this country in one month? Simply because of one thing, the loss of heart of the army. And that's concession. And that's exactly how the evil one would want to work in the church, is to help Christians think that, that it's a hopeless situation. He wants Christians to live in the church as if the world is all there is. Concession. Compromise. Let's have a look at these um, um, verses a little uh, more closely. 
I was amazed when I was looking in my little uh, study Bible and then I checked up some commentaries and that, that uh, something disturbed me here as I was reading these things about the armory where Paul says, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Do you know, that's not Paul. He pinched that. He lifted it. It's plagiarism. He pinched it from Isaiah. Isaiah says in verse chapter 11, verse 5, that, that passage about the, 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 the one who was going to come, the Davidic king, he says righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, or in the Greek version that Paul was reading, truth will be the sash around his waist. That's where he got that phrase from. What about this one? The breastplate of righteousness will be in place and in verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation. Where does that come from? Isaiah 59, one of those passages about Yahweh's servant that's going to come. The servant of Yahweh. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. What about, um, here's another one, verse 15. And uh, have your feet shod with the firmness of the gospel of peace or stand upon the readiness of the gospel of peace. Comes from Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who announces peace. Don't start singing, folks. Verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flames of the evil one. Shield of faith, well, it's not an Isaiah, but if you read through the Psalms, it's everywhere. In Genesis 15, for instance, the man of faith, Abraham, is told, first thing God says when he meets Abraham, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, Abram in a vision, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. What do you think Paul's getting at here? Verse 8, 17b, and the sword of the spirit. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, we read in Isaiah 49, 2, he made my mouth, mouth a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hit me. What's Paul trying to say? What is this armour he's trying to say? This is the big point he's trying to make, his central point. The large point, and if you forget everything tonight, remember this. And Paul is trying to say that the armour that we put on is none other than the same armour that the Lord Jesus used to fulfil God's purposes for him when he came into this world. Same armour. This is the armour that took him in to temptation. This is the armour that saw him withstand hostility. This is the armour that, that helped him through the garden of agony. This is the armour that kept him on the cross. This is the armour that made him obey God to the uttermost. And we have the same armour, exactly the same, not an inferior one. We have a heavenly hand-me-down, the armoury of Jesus Christ, no less. Don't you feel just a little privileged? So when Christ left us for his glorious throne, he did not leave us as orphans and he did not leave us unclothed. If only we appreciated this armour. Let's have a look at these components then. What do we get in this show bag, this, this uh, gift set of armour that uh, is ours? It falls into three sections. We get things that are to do with character, truth and righteousness. We then have a threesome which are about our confidence. We, we have the 
the feet shod, on the, we are firmly standing on the gospel of peace. We have the, uh, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. In other words, Paul wants us to focus three times upon what we have by virtue of the gospel itself. That's what he's talking about. Faith, salvation, the gospel, he tells us. And that is the, the strong point of the gospel. And then he has two particular instruments or two pieces of equipment that he gives us to live out this, this life. Um, so this, uh, let's have a look at these a little bit more, more closely. Um, let's have a look at truth, first of all. Firstly, verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Stand firm with the belt of truth. Each of these pieces of clothing are not just some sort of spiritual fashion statement, but they protect part of us. Therefore, they're telling us, that this is a direct, the direction, this is a trajectory from which the attack will come. So if we're told to put on a sash of truth or a belt of truth, it's saying that one way that the evil one will work is through untruth, through getting Christians to be fast and loose with the truth. All of these issues are issues which are... Um, uh, very real in my experience and anyone's experience who's been in the Christian uh, institutional context for any length of time. It only takes one half-truth, one little exaggeration, and it's like a bullet inside the tank. It'll bounce around and ricochet and take out any fleshly object in its path. Oh, where there's smoke, there's fire, says the rumour monger. And the one who receives the rumour is just as complicit as the one who creates it. I'm astonished at how many Christians don't think the telling of the truth is that important to God. A little distortion here, a little bit of self-interest there, but integrity is the armour of God that we must put on. We must become people who are scrupulous. There is no place for politics in the people of God, the artistry of half-truth. That's from the work of Satan. And we must recognise it for what it is. We must be severe on ourselves when it comes to scrupulous truth-telling. And then he says righteousness, and the same here. You know, we, we could focus on all the aspects of righteousness. It's about our moral fabric. And particularly, you know, we don't want to just focus on, on sexuality, but why not? We live in a world where... Every month, it seems, another great Christian influencer bites the dust and the press go into a feeding frenzy because they've been able to find another hypocrite holy man. And then we all suffer and the, the ears of the world turn away from the gospel that we'd otherwise preach. You think Satan rubs his hands at the time like that? Of course he does. It newts the church we can presume that uh, that won't be us. But where do these people fall? Why is it that the gifted fall? 
It begins where it begins in their imagination. They assume that their private thoughts are secret thoughts and no one sees them. And Satan will feed fantasy any day. And one day the fantasy is fueled and the fire gets too close. They stand too close to the fire and fantasy becomes fat. Too late then. If we want to understand spiritual warfare and we want to understand that we are the ones who have got to take up the armory, that it's a matter of concession, then we must be scrupulous about righteousness, moral righteousness. And some of you are saying, oh, look, I don't, I don't think that that's legalism, isn't it? Hey, think like that and you're sure to be a casualty. If you think that's true, If you think you can get away by watching anything or thinking anything or imagining anything and it won't affect your prayer life and it won't affect your your future marriage or your present marriage, then just uh, put it up on YouTube so we can all see because that's what the Lord sees already. And then he says, verses 15 to 17, And then with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, or we've got the footwear, we've got the shield, and we've got the helmet. He's basically saying the gospel clothes us from head to toe. It's something we can stand upon. It's something that will defend us, and it's something which will protect the way we think. That's the fullness of the holistic Christian life is built on the gospel. But there's this crazy idea going around in Christendom that somehow the gospel is what you believe and Christmas and Easter and John 3.16 and, you know, but then you've got to move on to more serious things and, uh, you know, you've got to sort of graduate from Sunday school somewhere. But, folks, the gospel is always pertinent to the Christian life. We day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, depend on thinking about life and its challenges through the lens of the gospel. We never get away from that. Just read the New Testament. Read Paul. All the imperatives of the New Testament are based on the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of them. Paul never expects it to become sort of uh, sophisticated Christians. You know, I was amazed as I was doing a little bit of research in this about the shield of faith. And the Roman shield was a, an interesting structure. It had to be light enough to carry but large enough to cover and it was made out of a steel frame covered with wood and, uh, and things like that, and then an outer layer of leather to bind it all together. And when the Roman soldier went into battle, when they were going to attack a city or another army, they would douse their shields in water because as they got close to the walls, as they were hit with the archers who dipped their arrows in pitch like them, they'd see these flames of fire which would send panic into the troops. And you could end up with a shield full of javelins and and held by your left arm. And the panicking soldier would think, this will not support me anymore. And they'd lay down their shield and guess what? Next minute, thunk, they're out of the game. That's exactly a picture of a Christian who thinks they can do Christianity without the simple gospel. That simple gospel is what you are going to depend on if you ever are unrighteous. That simple gospel is what you are going to depend on whenever you lack confidence. 
And you're bound to lack confidence because that's what Satan's primary ploy is, to make you feel powerless and inferior. Put down the shield. But that's exactly what we mustn't do. We never graduate from the simple gospel. At a point at which you are at your lowest, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will sustain you but that gospel. At the point at which you are feeling most wretched, when you think you cannot face God, you must turn and realise you've got to remember what stands you before God, the feet you have that you are standing on, the shoes you are standing in, is nothing other than that gospel, that simple ridiculously simple gospel that I am saved by Christ's merits, not my own. Thank God for that. Just imagine that day when you face the Lord. Just imagine that day when it's report time and you've got to supply your report card to the Lord. You picture the moment and you hand over that envelope with your report and he opens it up to read and here's what he will say. And you think he's going to rub your nose in it, don't you? And he he lifts that report and he says, hmm, here I see what you've been doing. Hmm, that's interesting. 40 days in the wilderness fighting the devil. That must have been tough. And he reads on. He reads, my goodness, uh, standing up to the continual hatred of the authorities. And you went to the cross in obedience. And I say, hold on, that's, that's not my report card. And he says, oh, I'm afraid so. It's got, it's got your name on it down the bottom, just underneath that bloody thumbprint. You see, that is the doctrine of the gospel. We're not saved by our love for God. We're not even saved by his love for us. He loves the whole world wherever they end up. We're saved by his life in my place, my sin on him, his righteousness put on my report card. And that happens at day one, and I depend on that right until the day he opens that mail. That's what Satan would like you to put down and depend on your righteousness in and of yourself. That's not the gospel, though. Simple gospel, huh? Profoundly powerful gospel, if you ask me. And then he says, as a soldier was being clothed by the attendant, the last thing the attendant would handle, hand him is the sword. This is his weaponry, his only offensive weapon. It's a small sword we're talking about here. It's a different word. And that one is for close-in fighting. It's for personal defence. It's this sword. And uh, this is called... Interestingly, the sword of the spirit. Isn't that interesting? You know, today there is false teaching going around the church and I can only presume its origin is evil because Satan does not want you to be able to defend yourself in close quarters. But remember the Lord Jesus when he was in close quarters in hand-to-hand combat with Satan in a desert with no visible means of support hungry, thirsty, headache, dehydrated. And Satan comes to him that time with this wonderful idea that, hey, you can be as prominent as I let you be and you can avoid the pain of the cross. 
and he comes with that deal. How does Jesus defend himself at that point? How does Jesus defend himself? Does he say, well, um, I've got some good apologetic arguments here, or please, Satan, don't box me into, into modernist categories. I'm a postmodern Christian. He, he doesn't say five out of six rabbis believe that what you're saying is actually mythological. Uh, no, he gets out the scriptures, the sword of the spirit. It's a spirit that had the scriptures written in the first place. He, over, over 8,000 years, he worked to get his prophets to put that down. How can we lay it aside? And it's a false word. If it comes from California, it comes from the pit of hell that the spirit and the, the scriptures are enemies, that somehow you graduate from the scriptures. The scriptures are the sword of the spirit. He places them in your hands. He wants you to know them. If you don't immerse yourself in those scriptures, you're saying, I will deal with Satan in my own hands. And the answer to Satan is the word of God. If you don't believe that, if you don't have a high view of the word of you're already a casualty. And then he finishes by saying, and he's run out of metaphors. He leaves the armory metaphor behind. He says, one other thing you've got to do, and I love this, he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests or supplications or petitions, depends on the version you're writing, reading. On all occasions, and with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. In other words, this is not about ecstatic prayer. A lot of people have got magic ideas that if only they could pray in ecstasy, somehow that would be more powerful. But that's not what Paul says. Real prayer is prayer in the Spirit. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit helps. He takes my pathetic prayers and he turns them into acceptable prayers. He takes them from my stumbling and my weak faith, and he takes them right to the floor of the temple of heaven and he lays them out before the king. That's prayer in the spirit. If we are going to be powerful in prayer, then the way we honour God, the way we honour God is to use that gift. That way we demonstrate that we really do believe that God is willing and able and wants to answer our prayers. We put him to the test. We say, I do think that you can answer this prayer by asking him for something. And isn't it interesting in this, this little letter, Paul says, oh, while I'm talking about prayer, verses 19, can you guys pray for me too? Now that's the acid test. Paul lived by this mantra. Paul didn't get through life because of his reputation. Paul didn't defeat Satan because he is a tough guy. He was tough, but he was fearful. And when he's in this jail awaiting trial, he knows that Paul, the man, can blow this thing. He can fluff it. He can be a flake just as well as you and I. And so he depends on the prayers of God's people as his armory at that time. A few years ago, I had the privilege of doing some teaching in a country that was pretty hostile and uh, met some amazing Christians who leave my Christian life in the shade. To meet them was a sermon. And one day, uh, it was actually at a wedding reception, 
I met this guy in his sister's restaurant where she was running a wedding reception and he'd just got out of jail. His name was Joshua. He was a young pastor, 28 years old, probably roughly the same age as many people watching tonight. He'd been a Christian two or three years, but he knew that if he had found the gospel, it was his responsibility to bring as many of his friends along that same route of salvation that he'd travelled. And so eventually he started leading his friends to the Lord and there is such an appetite for the gospel in that place that they had to hire, move out of a lounge room and hire a hall. They didn't have the right religious paperwork from the authorities, so the authorities would come and close them down. They'd move to another hall. They'd move to a schoolroom. Eventually the authorities were getting on close to their heels, so they moved out of halls out to the People's Park and they worshipped in the outdoors in front of everyone. 80 people by this time, 80 people he had led to the Lord. This young man uh, could hardly understand a word of my English. My dialect was not good, but his was perfect as he described what happened when he was arrested, imprisoned and then brought before the court. He's brought before the court and the judge lays and the prosecutor lays before the judge a heap of bogus offences along with the offence of preaching an ideology that is against the state belief system. And he's listening to this trucked up bunch of charges from parking offences and, you know, having an unregistered oven in his house. They wanted to put him away for a long time and the charge of conducting religious services would put him away for seven years. And in the middle of this, he says to the judge, judge, there's an error that I need to point out. And that is the worst offence I've committed is what I actually preach to the people. And he laid out to the judge that though I don't have a barrister here today, I do have an advocate. And this advocate who speaks for me, has stepped into my life and he stepped into this world and he is the one who has taken my sin and he's the one to whom all judges will be held to account. And this gets taken down in the hansards of the court in this country that is closed to the gospel. There is the gospel message written in indelible ink for all to read and stay for it. For some reason or other, This guy is released two weeks later and he goes back to his people in the People's Park and 80 have become 120. And I ask you, why is that? Why is it? Is it because he's an impressive guy? Is it because he's a tough guy? I tell you what, it's because he trusted the toughness of the armour. that his God was his shield. My friends, there's only two sorts of people listening to me tonight. Those people who are cavalier about this message, who I can guarantee in 20 years' time will be casualties and we will hear of them no longer. But for the grace of God, they will make it to the gate of heaven. 
And then there are those who realise that what they were born into when they signed their, their life away to Jesus, they're enlisted in a battle where their fundamental task is to do what? To stand their place, putting on the full armour of God. And let's just see what he can do through plebs like us with the armour that has been tested in the baptismal fires of Calvary. And may we glorify in that story, in that place, in that day, when the report cards get read. Amen. Jeff, thank you so much for 